Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Kasmer, and today we're going to be doing some myth busting, pulling apart some of that bad advice that gets given to mountain bikers, especially beginners. You know, things like no brakes pull up, as if that's ever worked well, or maybe you need to learn on a hardtail. So we got a whole list of things that we're going to pick apart and see which ones might be a little bit true, and most of them are not true. But we'll be doing that soon. First, I've got Sarah Moore and James Smurthwaite here. Sarah, did you ride this weekend? I did. Yeah, we had some beautiful weather. It kind of felt like it was summer already. So yeah, got out and did some of the slab trails in Squamish because they're just like perfect this time of year. So before the exits of them get too blown out, just wanted to like check off a couple of those. Yeah, yeah, it's good to get in there before the the moon dust happens. How about you, James? Get out on a ride? Yeah, I rode as well. We've also had a a spate of of good weather here. So got a decent ride in on the gravel bike. Um, yeah, it was really nice. Very uneventful, but but really nice. Yeah, it's good. This time of year is nice. Yeah, same thing down here in Bellingham. Pretty ideal conditions for biking before the rain comes back, but I'm all ready for the rain again. I need that the little the moon dust. I don't like it. I like the mud. So Yeah, it's crazy how fast it sets in that the trails are just dry. You know, yeah. it's like it was just raining two weeks ago and suddenly it feels like the middle of summer. So yeah, I'm kind of looking forward. We're supposed to get a little bit of rain next week. So hopefully that'll just make the trails perfect again. Exactly. All right. Well, James, why don't you take it away with the news? Sure. Um, so Pond Beaver still in full swing. And this week we got to see Fox's overhaul of its trail suspension range. The twin tube Flow X2 and DHX2, we're all pretty familiar with them. Um, they're pretty well established now. But we've got the return of the Flow X and the DHX this week. Kaz, um, why would riders choose these over their twin tube counterparts? Uh, a couple of reasons. One of them, you're going to have lighter weight in general for like the Float X versus the Float X2. It's a little bit lighter, kind of more oriented towards trail bikes rather than um, say enduro or downhill bikes. The adjustments are a little bit simpler. You just have low speed compression and rebound compared to high speed rebound, low speed rebound, high speed compression, low speed compression. Um, and kind of same thing goes with that DHX, just a little bit simpler. So you'll you'll find them, like I said, more trail, right? trail oriented. Um, and you know, I did see some comments, people saying that, oh, why are they going single tube? Twin tube is so much better. But that's a topic that you could debate endlessly that you can you can make a twin tube suspension design work super well, just like you could a a single tube uh, shock. So, yeah, we got them in for testing. We'll report back eventually. There's also been uh, an overhaul to the 34 range with a new regular version and a step cast version as well. The regular version gets a redesigned crown and stronger chassis, should make it a bit better for longer travel applications. And it also gets the lower leg bypass channels we've seen on Fox's bigger forks that's kind of been trickling down the range the past couple of years. There's also the new step cast version. This is the version with a bit of a chunk taken out of the lower leg and it's also got a narrower crown. All of this makes it a bit more lightweight. Um, and Fox say this is more for those technical XC courses where you might need something a bit burlier than the 32. Kaz, um, you mentioned we've got this in for testing. Um, you've had a couple of rides on this stuff now. Um, do you have any in- initial impressions? Yeah, I've got the new 34, just the regular one, not the Stepcast one. I've got that in a 140 millimeter version and it's on a stump jumper, just the regular stump jumper. Um, so far, it feels great. I mean, you know, a lot of times I'm riding bigger, burlier things like the 38 or the Zeb, but then you go to a little fork and it just, it does exactly what it's supposed to. It's got that grip two damper. So it's super smooth, um, feels appropriate for that bike. You know, I haven't found myself thinking like, oh, I should put a 36 on it. So uh, yeah, it'll get some more testing in, but I do think that for where these are oriented for, you know, XC bikes all the way up to 
kind of trail bikes, I think that they're going to be good options. But again, more testing to do. Staying in the world of suspension, we also saw the new Bright Racing um, F929XCO. Um, this is an Italian-made, pretty boutique, upside-down fork uh, aimed at cross-country riding, as the name suggests. Uh, for an upside-down fork, this thing is really light. Um, it comes in at uh, 1,630 grams. That makes it lighter than the RockShox inverted fork. It came out a few years ago, the RS1. That being said, it's still heavier than a standard fork, a sort of regular way up fork. Um, however, Bright claims that their fork will offer better precision. Obviously, this is a boutique fork. It's not trying to revolutionize the suspension market. But, you know, why do these in- inverted forks keep coming along but but never seem to catch on? Yeah, I think part of that does come down to the weight. Um, they tend to be heavier just due to the that design in order to make that design stiff enough to be rideable, it kind of ends up increasing the weight. Um, I think there's, there's benefits to it as far as that, you know, fore and aft stiffness, but then you do get the kind of twisting forces that can make them feel not quite as precise. Um, yeah, like that RS1 definitely had fans when that was out, but again, it kind of disappeared because people were going with the SID instead. Um, I think that we're going to try to get this bright in. I, I feel like Sebstop may try to get one in to test it because it looks interesting. It's kind of cool to check out what these smaller little companies are, are going with. So yeah, another one to look out for in the future, see what we think. Yeah, definitely interested to read that. Um, I'd also say if you're interested in these like cool European boutique small brands, um, definitely give the European Bright Project a follow. Um, they brought this to our attention. They share all these things and they're always really cool. So definitely give them a follow. Um, so moving on, we have the X Games real MTB edits. Mountain biking has a bit of a checkered past with the X Games, but I thought this was an absolutely huge success. Um, six athletes all submitted 90 second edits. I think it's fair to say everyone kind of, you know, gave this the the, the sort of the respect it's deserved. They went all out. There were some huge hits in there. Um, there were a few I wanted to highlight. I thought um, Vero Sandler's was really, really cool. Um, might not have had some of the bigger hits of the free ride guys, but um, definitely a great 90 second watch. I think there was a danger of her being maybe like the token woman, um, but she definitely showed that she deserved her place. Like her crank, crank quick nothing was really good. Um, definitely was ripping through the berms as well. Um, and the pink bike audience agreed to. Um, she's fourth in our sort of unofficial poll at the moment, um, which was really cool. What did you guys make of that one? Yeah, I think it had like a, really really good energy and it just like you watched it and you wanted to ride you know so I think she did a really good job and it wasn't like oh that's the video from the woman so it's not as good it was I mean I think she totally held her own and it was really really cool that they were able to get her and she was able to pull together that part yeah exactly it was cool yeah same thing that kind of like makes you want to ride with some a lot of the others were impressive but there were definitely things that I could never do which like oh that's cool but didn't make me want to go and like Huck off her roof and do a backflip or something. But yeah, was, it was oh yeah, I could go smash the corners. The, there was kind of like a couple of recurring themes of like, oh, there's quite a few roofs in there, and like quite a people, few people did that. Um, you know, like Danny McCaskill, I think, and Vero both did off of a, a vehicle. I don't know what that's called, but one of those things. Oh yeah, you know? the, um, the caveman drop. Yes, ninja that. drop. <laughs> yeah. yeah, caveman drops and roof drops. I think um, um, Seminuk and McCaskill kind of maybe suffered from maybe like spoiling us a little bit too much, you know, like I think we're just used to greatness from them. And there was some like amazing kind of casual, really cool stuff in there. I think of like Seminuk's like nose bonk to suicide no hander on that sort of 
Utah sort of stack. And then, um, I don't know, Danny had like his tree drop and his like his bump front flip thing. Um, but yeah, the bar is so high for them sometimes. Yeah, you're you know, all just kind of used to it. Yeah, like when you see Danny, you're like, oh, it's going to do something crazy. Oh, look, he did something crazy. It like doesn't get your heart going. But then you watch some of the other ones that are like a little more raw. Like we're going to talk about Braga's in a bit. But yeah, those ones you're like, oh, is he going to pull it off? And he does where Seminuk and Danny, you know that like 99.9% of the time they're going to do it flawlessly. So yeah, yeah. or even if they're going to crash, they're going to make it look flawless right up mm-hmm. until the crash. So you would never guess that they were going to crash, right? Like Braga was like, oh gosh, he's he's really on the edge here. Like, is he going <laughs> to make it through the edit? And he also, I knew that he broke his leg for filming for these. So I was wondering if they were going to, you know, include that in there or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think Braga is the obvious winner for me and I assume you guys as well. Yeah, I watched that like five times so far. It's so good. It's it's everything that I'd want from a, a bike video, like doing a 180 or I guess, yeah, it's a, it's a half cab, I guess. So he does a half cab on a skinny and then just the size and the shape of the features he's hitting. And it's always snowy or muddy or like his run just going to creek beds. And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it looks very kind of raw, not as polished, I guess, but like, yeah, really, really impressive. Yeah, he's just going for it. So yeah, if anyone hasn't seen these in want to do the the quick view if you just watch bragas and viros you'll be pretty good you can watch all the other ones too because they're only 90 seconds yeah Yeah. exactly i love it i mean i know maybe you know some of them it might not be their best format they might prefer a longer format but it's pretty nice just to be able to go and watch 90 seconds and check it off i saw i saw that must watch thing (laughs) yeah (laughs) this week's pink bike podcast is presented by the pink bike shop where you can check out the new limited edition down with down country collection which is coming soon Be the first to get your hands on the limited edition collection starting on April 26th and show that you are down with down country. Sure to travel, lightning quick bikes that are still ready to get after it and attack steep and rowdy terrain. Check out the all new down with down country collection of hats, t-shirts, water bottles and more before they're gone. Along with all our other pink bike merch at www.shop.pinkbike.com. Order by April 30th and get 15% off your order by using the code PBPODCAST at checkout. All right. Well, let's get into some questions. Just got a couple today. The first one comes from Cubby and he says, what are some red flags of poorly set up suspension and what are some indicators of well set up suspension? Also, any other suspension setup tips and tricks would be appreciated. Well, let's see. Red flags. I mean, one red flag is if you're bottoming your suspension out everywhere, if you're just constantly feeling a harsh clang or just... Feel like you're using all your travel even off small little drops that's kind of a red flag that probably need to do something to uh, address that whether it's more air pressure possibly some volume spacers um, that's something that can definitely affect your performance if your fork's diving super deep um, especially on steep trails it can get scary um, other things rebound speed is something to deal with if you're if your fork just feels like it's going into a travel and never coming back up that could be too slow of rebound yeah, if you feel like you're getting bucked or like you're sitting mm-hmm. super high on your travel or if your bike just feels harsh, like you have this nice air suspension, but it just feels like it's not doing its job. Mm-hmm. Those are all signs that you might need to dig into it. Um, yeah, I think going to a knowledgeable shop is a great place to start. Or if you have a buddy that's knowledgeable that maybe has given other people advice that seems to have worked out, that's a good place to start. Um, and, and even just starting with your manufacturer's recommended setup guides as a baseline and kind of working from there. Just familiar yourself, familiarize yourself with what you have for suspension it's good you know just knowing what those dials do is a a big step in the right direction the next question comes from bucket b 
He says, do you have a preferred side for cornering? Does it align with your handedness? It's a good question. How about you, Sarah? Which way do you I turn? You right like turn or left turn? Turning left better. And are you left or right-handed? I am right-handed. Which foot do you ride with forward? My right foot. Hmm, interesting. All right. How about you, James? Yeah, I'm absolutely identical for that. Uh, left hand turns, right handed, and right foot forwards. Yeah. Huh. I like left hand turns, but I'm left foot forward, and I'm left handed. Oh, so it's it. I mean, it does align with your handedness. Oh wait, me, no, you do like left hand turns. Yeah, I like left turns, but I'm left handed and left ah. foot forward. So it doesn't align are... with our handedness, but left hand turns are just better. <laughs> it turns out, yeah, three, three <laughs> podcast people say the left hand turns are better than right hand turns. So there you go. Out of this uh, vast sample selection, we have, yeah. have determined that left hand corners are better than right hand corners. Yep. So that's some science in action. Well, speaking of things that are true that might not actually be true, that brings us into our discussion. So we're going to do some myth busting today, going over the truisms about mountain biking that aren't actually true. So you've probably heard some of these. Um, they kind of get tossed around a lot of times beginners just get hit with a wave of information where people say do this do this do this and all of a sudden you'll be an amazing mountain biker and a lot of those do this statements are inaccurate so let's start with one that i think all of us have probably had uh mentioned to us and it's you need to learn on a hardtail now i learned on a hardtail because i couldn't afford a full suspension bike but did either of you learn on full suspension bikes i also learned on a hardtail i got a 400 hundred dollar used hardtail came with clips and the shoes, the shoes were too big. So instead of like unclipping, I would just pull my foot out of the shoe half the time. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it was like that beginner friendly of a hardtail. It was like a pretty steep Da Vinci cactus cross country bike, probably like $800 brand new. So, um, I mean, I learned and I stuck with it, but I don't know if I needed to learn on that bike. I was like a lot happier. My next bike was a full suspension. It was a Da Vinci Dragonfly. These are great names. I've never heard of the cactus or the dragonfly. <laughs> I know. Cacti- I, cactus actually doesn't sound like a good name. I don't think you should ride a cactus, but the dragonfly. No, it kind of felt like cactus. I mean, it's a good yeah. name for that <laughs> bike. I mean. <laughs> Point EXE thing. Yeah. <laughs> what about James? Yeah, I think, and I think that this, yeah, James, you said you learned on a hardtail also, right? Yeah, a similar, I, I learned on a hardtail, not out of um, any particular advice I was given, but just that's what my budget could stretch to. Um, mine was a specialized rock hopper. And um, I loved it. I had a really good time on it, but I don't know if it necessarily taught me then more than a full suspension would have. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I rode more when I got my first full suspension because I enjoyed it more. And so probably learned more as a result. But um, I don't know. Maybe I was slightly better at pumping or, or jumping or, or something because of the hardtail stuff to say. Yeah, like as much, you know, I think hardtails are a great tool for beginners just because of the cost and their simplicity. So like that's a... A valid reason that they should they can work well for people that are new to the sport but the idea that you somehow won't gain the same skills on a full suspension bike or you're not as hardcore because you didn't learn on a hardtail that's super silly to me like i think that yeah learn on whatever bike you can afford and eventually most people are going to go to full suspension bikes in general just because that's where the sport is now and they do offer the most comfort and performance compared to hardtails so i think that yeah, I think to learn on a hardtail, not bad advice, but definitely not true advice. You can learn everything you need about mountain biking on full suspension bike. Yeah, because what what like are some of those things that people are talking about, I guess, when they're saying you're not going to learn them on a full suspension bike, like bunny hops or like pumping more. I don't know, like just like having a harsh bike is going to be more beneficial to you in the long run <laughs> yeah i think like picking lines i guess like a hardtail maybe forces you to pick smoother lines 
Um, maybe more sensible lines, something like that. Kind of like down country bikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which you know I think is true. But again, even on like a full suspension bike, you can't exactly just go like straight down and plow through everything like without crashing. Like that doesn't really work. So I think you'd still need to pick lines. But I, I mean, I've heard that argument too. Yeah, it makes you smoother. And so I think there's merits to riding a hardtail, but it's not the magical like be all end all. It gets put on this pedestal that I don't think it needs to be on. Like I know the hardtail people are already typing comments to me saying, why do I hate <laughs> hardtails? I don't hate hardtails. They're fine. And I've spent tons of time on them. They're great. I just don't think that they're maybe not as special as people like to make them out to be. Like, yeah, they're, they're just cool. They're another bike, but uh, yeah, full suspension bikes work great these days also. I also, I, I still like the argument that, you know, if you're getting into riding and you're super fit, but you're really scared of the downhills, then get yourself a little bit of suspension to make those downhills less scary and you're more likely to stick with the sport. And if you're, you know, really unfit, maybe the climbs are what's, you know, holding you back from getting out on a ride. So in that case, by a hardtail, you'll be more efficient on the climbs, you'll get to the downhills a little bit, you know, less tired. So I, I like yeah. that argument. Yeah, that works. Yeah. So <laughs> hardtails are great, but you don't need to learn on one. And anybody that has never ridden a hardtail and has only ridden full suspension, you'll be totally fine if you try out a hardtail. It doesn't, they're not like super hard to ride. You'll figure it out. And it lets you know if you're doing it wrong really quickly too. It's instant feedback. <laughs> all right, let's go to another of the top, uh, call it myths. This one, we've probably all heard this before. You're, you're standing in front of some sort of sketchy jump or a, a, a move or something. And you're like, oh, how do I do this? And someone says, oh, just no brakes and pull up. You'll be fine. Have you heard that before, Sarah? Oh, definitely. Or just even like no brakes, period. Mm -hmm. Or no brakes, it rolls and you're like, ah, it looks yeah. like you had to lift your front wheel a bit. Like, I don't think uh -huh. that's a roll. We have different <laughs> definitions of roll. <laughs> yeah. Or like, it's just trail speed. You'll be fine. That's yeah. Too. Yeah. It's And they don't realize that they are actually popping and you're like, hmm, yeah, that looks scary. But yeah, I think no brakes is, I mean, it's true that when you go through sections of trail, without brakes, you know, you're, you're going to get over things that maybe you couldn't have if you were going slower, but if you're not in control, then, you know, there's no point in trying to ride the thing and then going off the trail, like 20 seconds later and crashing. Yeah. And the pull up, you know, if it's referring to a jump, like someone's trying to figure out how to hit a jump and someone's mm -hmm. just like, no brakes, pull up, but you don't really pull up. Like you don't just yard, you don't just refund your handlebars and like pull the front end up and then you're going to magically make it to the other side of the jump. But yeah, I mean, you could, but not, it's not going to work. So, um, yeah, if someone's trying to just give you blanket statement, jumping advice like this, don't listen to them. Um, I recommend taking a lesson or having someone that actually knows what they're talking about, show you how to jump. Cause it, it's a, it can be a painful learning experience, but it can be a lot easier if somebody starts small and you can kind of work your way up to, to bigger, bigger moves. But yeah, no breaks, pull up doesn't always work. I'd say it's, pretty rare that that's actually going to be the correct technique i was going to say i feel like um you can spot the friday fails clips where someone's been told this or another one is um like on steep stuff i'll oh, just lean back and you'll be fine kind of thing mm -hmm. um and you can just spot the people who are just like coming in too hot and like they're pulling so hard their front wheel like jerks left or jerks right and then they land crooked and um yeah obviously in friday fails it doesn't always end that well yeah yeah friday fails is a great way to see what happens if you take all the advice that we're going to talk about here if you take all the bad advice you'll end up on friday fails is likely out of control crashing somewhere unless you're really lucky and then you might end up on saturday sends even though yeah. you were like just a little <laughs> fraction of a hair away from being on friday <laughs> yeah, fails the <laughs> yeah the difference sometimes isn't that big between the fail and the send yeah um, 
Yeah. James, you mentioned that you know, seeing people way off the back of their bike, leaning back on steep terrain, which obviously doesn't work well. That kind of goes with the advice that I remember hearing. You still hear it more. Well, you still hear it. I, I definitely hear like parents telling their kids, like, don't use your front brake. You're going for the handlebars. Uh, people are really scared of that front brake as if it's some horrible thing that you just shouldn't even use. And Sarah, you mentioned you didn't used to use your front brake that much, right? Like you heard this advice was told to you at some point. Yeah. Well, I, you know, when you ride rock slabs, people say, you have to use your front brake. And I was like, yeah, you have to use your front brake. But like, they don't mean like, you know, you're almost holding your front brake as hard as you can, because of course you're going to go off your handlebars if you do that. But actually when you're going down really steep rock slabs, you have to hold your brake as hard as you can. But I think that maybe comes from like um, learning how to, people who ride motorcycles, if you do grab the front brake, it can be quite dangerous, I think. Um or they're a lot more sensitive than mountain bike brakes. And you can go over the handlebars, definitely, if you just grab your front brake really suddenly. But you do want to be able to use your front brake, obviously. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and modern, mountain bikes ha- modern mountain bikes have pretty good modulation. But yeah, if mm-hmm. you went out with some powerful disc brakes and grabbed it with like your whole fist, like you could definitely flip over the front. Yeah. But luckily our hands are pretty sensitive and can like put out different amounts of power. So. Yeah, don't be afraid of that front brake. Uh, you're not going to go over the handlebars unless you do some ham-fisted braking where you just grab it. But overall, it's it's crucial to steeper steeper terrain. Like you can't get away with. If you're ever in a dirt jumper off road, just maybe trying to ride some trails with just a rear brake, you'll know. You wish you had a front <laughs> brake. It's so scary. All the kids. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's go into some more kind of like tech-related things. That's another thing. Sometimes newcomers to the sport or even people that have been doing it for a while, they get in these habits or hear these things that stick in their head, and they just go with it, even if they don't know if it's the right thing to do. Um, I worked in a shop for years, so I've seen all kinds of people bring their bikes in and you ask them, what are you doing? And they say a certain thing, you're like, oh yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. So the one that stands out to me is the idea that you need to lube your chain before every single ride, no matter what. And just, I've seen bikes come in, just the drivetrain and derailleur and chain are so caked with just like black gunk. And they're like, I lube my chain all the time. I don't know what's happening. So. Yeah, and it's so gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, I mean, it's come from, you know, a place of, you know, good intent where somebody's told them you have to lube your chain or your gears won't work. But if you're over lubing your chain, then it just gets like so much grime on it. And if you're not like kind of cleaning it before you go riding, then you just, it's like so messy and so dirty. Yeah, and there's obviously like lots of different kinds of lubes and things, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but some people use yeah like a super heavy, gunky, oily lube. So, um, yeah, you don't need to necessarily lube your chain before every ride. Typically, if your chain starts to sound dry, you know, like a not, not necessarily squeaky, but the a dry chain does have a distinct sound. That's a good sign that you need to reapply lube. You know, usually I like to do it at the end of a ride. Just put the lube on, you know, backpedal, put lube on, let the bike sit, and the next day it's. Typically good to go. Basically, you don't need to go crazy with a chain loop. Although it's really satisfying when you take the flathead screwdriver and take the gunk off the pulley wheels and the derailleur. That's probably one of <laughs> my favorite I do enjoy things that, about. yeah. It's so good. <laughs> I don't know why. That's like the, it's like ASMR for mountain bikers or something yeah. or whatever the equivalent of that. It's so good. But yeah, over lubing chains is definitely a thing that I think happens a lot. And um, same thing, you probably don't need some super wet, gunky chain lube either. There's some nice light ones that are... More friendly, if you do lube your chain before every ride, they don't get as gunky as other ones. So experiment with that, but over But also do lube your chain if you wash your bike with water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's also good. And it's not a bad idea sometimes to have like a little tiny bottle of chain lube with you because inevitably you're going to 
run across some person on the trail that's pedaling up the hill. Just you can hear their bike from a mile away. It's like <laughs> rah, 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 rah. so <laughs> it's nice if you can be that person. Be like, hey, you want some chain lube? And then a lot of times that person has headphones in. I've noticed there's a direct equivalent between <laughs> the guy like just struggling up and they have headphones on. You're like, I could give you some chain lube and make everything better. I know why you have headphones in. I would have headphones in too if my chain were making that uh-huh, much noise. Exactly. Yeah, which is a little known trick on how to get rid of all the creaks in your bike. Headphones. Yeah. That's <laughs> also a terrifying trick, but... Yeah, and, yeah, that might be a myth. <laughs> there's a lot of myths going around about pedals, I reckon. Um, there's kind of two contrasting myths as well, which is quite funny. There's kind of like real riders clip in, but also flat pedals win medals. I think people give you advice based on what they use, and they assume to be the best with this one. Yeah, exactly. Like I, yeah, it's it's great that Sam Hill can win races with flat pedals because that keeps the flat pedal crowd just you know convinced of superiority. But then, if somebody clips in, then the clipless pedal crowd decides that they're the best. So it's another. I mean, it's really just personal preference. But if you're new to the sport and enjoying the flat pedals, there's not really a real need to switch over to clipless pedals. I remember when I started, I thought that clipless pedals were like that's what I had to do as soon as possible. So I saved my money and bought those. Nash bar shoes and the clipless things I was like, oh, now I'm a real rider. But, um, but then a few years later, I found myself on flat pedals because I was trying to do more downhill stuff. So yeah, it kind of goes both ways. Um, I switch back and forth pretty much like every other day. But Sarah, what do you, what do you usually ride? I usually ride clip pedals. And I, it's really interesting because, yeah, sometimes people will see that you're riding clips and they'll be like, wow, you can ride clips. That's so good. And you're, you're like, well, actually, Personally, I find it more difficult to ride flat pedals just because I haven't spent as much time on them. And so last spring, I you know took a couple months. It was like, okay, I'm only riding flat pedals, and I learned how to ride flat pedals. But it's definitely almost two different skills. Like one is whatever you learn on, I think is what you're going to be more comfortable with. And um, like, there's definitely you know some benefits to riding clips and some benefits to riding flats and I've gone back to clips for the most part now but you know if you're somebody who takes your who enjoys taking your feet off and I I found it helped me you know actually learning how to do bunny hops properly better not just you know pulling up with my clip pedals so um there's definitely and it's a lot less scary if you're gonna loop out on a wheelie um yeah, I like it when it's wet and muddy out too, just to like mm-hmm. get my foot off and on. And in the bike park too, I usually ride flats. I just feel like, I don't know why, I just kind of like riding flats in the bike park. But then like if I was going to race, I would definitely clip in just because on rough terrain when you're kind of, especially if you're fatigued, I think it's a lot easier to keep your feet in place. Um, and yeah, so if I was a racer, I would fully be clipped in. But I think it's a time and place for both. How about you, James? Are you on flats mostly? I learned on flats um, and I kind of got in my head that, oh, kind of what's the point in changing? I'll just spend loads of time falling off on clips. But actually I tried them about two years ago and maybe this is another myth busted, but I only like fell off because of like forgetting to unclip once. And then that kind of taught me always remember to unclip. Um, yeah, I, I run the tension pretty low as well. So I kind of don't struggle getting my feet in and out or dabbing or, or things like that. Um, yeah, I think I'm pretty much fully converted to clips now. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I yeah. think that's almost a myth that like if you crash in clip pedals, you're gonna automatically be still connected to your bike. And if you crash in clip pedals, somehow your feet just disconnect. I don't know if it's memory. Yeah, <laughs> what happens? It is weird. It still gets in my mind though. If I'm gonna hit like a big move, knowing I'm clipped in, is still like 
it still kind of gets in there a little bit. So oh, no, I'm yeah, definitely going to do anything scary on my clip pedal so I don't have to worry about, are my feet in the right place? Are they going to, like, move at all? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd pick flats. If I was going to do, like, the scariest move ever, I think I'd pick flats. I'd be clipped yeah. in yeah. for the scariest move ever. Mm. Yeah, maybe we'll find <laughs> the scariest move ever. This could be, like, a, a Mike versus Sarah contest. <laughs> maybe the best not. left corner and then this into the scariest oh, yeah. thing ever. <laughs> Yeah, when the border opens, we'll find a good left corner. That sounds more fun than the scariest yeah. move ever. <laughs> yeah, I didn't when I first started with pink bike like eight or nine years ago. I was pretty much only flats, but then because I had to review things, I started going back to clips again. Like I clipped in when I was an XC person, and then I went to flats when I thought I was a free ride person, and then and now yeah, I just switched back and forth. Like now every, you have an identity crisis. You're not sure, you know. Are, yeah, a exactly. Person or a clip person? Well, today I'm going to ride flats. Tomorrow I'm going to ride clips. So. Yeah. I do think it's silly when you see flat pedals on like full XC bikes. I think that you should just clip in on those. I don't mm-hmm. know. There's something about the way it looks when like big honking flat pedals on a bike that's supposed to be like super light and fast. Yeah, you can clip in or ride flats and you'll be just fine. So I think a lot of it is, is also region dependent. Like around here we're in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of people ride flats all the time. You're kind of used to it. But I do know there's other regions where everybody clips in a little more kind of XC trail focused. So if you did start rocking flats, some people might give you uh, a strange eye but you could uh you can go either way and you'll be just fine what else do we have we were talking about climbing up big hills looping your chain about water and the fact that i think when you first start going out on bike rides you get you know put in your head that you need tons and tons of water like a whole camelback full of water two liters you need it full all the way to the top no matter what i feel like sarah still brings lots of water on her <laughs> <laughs> well maybe not five gallons but I mean, it, yeah, it totally depends on how long your ride is and how much you've had to drink during the day, whether you're like starting your ride dehydrated or not. But I definitely now lean on the side of being overprepared and wearing a little camelback vest when I go out for more than two hours. Like when I you feel- get home, are you are you always dumping out your camelback? Like do you no. have water left no. over? No. no. Okay, so that's a good, see, that's all right. I just think that a lot of people... You get home and you realize you're carrying like three pounds of water on your back the whole ride that you never use. So if you're going on rides, you know, your you're after work ride, that's just an hour and a half, two hours. You probably don't need two liters of water. Like that would be a, a lot to drink. So it's good to just, it's something that's easy to forget, but you kind of like balance out the amount of water you need. I'm not telling people to get dehydrated and don't go die in the desert on me or anything, but uh, you might not need all of that water for every single <laughs> ride. And you don't have to fill your camel back to the top every time. You just put the amount you think you'll need. Yeah, that's what I usually do is I, I just find it easier to drink when it's there and it's on my back versus reaching down to drink out of the water bottle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I still, I didn't, I don't wear a pack hardly ever, but I do know that when I, like when I was younger, I would always think it had to be full all the way. And I can, I just remember every, after every ride, there'd still be so much water left. So I have a good tip though. So if you only fill up your camelback half full, you know how it'll have like an air bubble and you'll, your water will just be like sloshing around on your back and it's the worst sound ever. So mm. people like to fill them up all the way so that they don't have that. But if you flip your camelback bag upside down and get suck all the air out through the hose, then you can have like half a liter of water in your camelback that actually holds two liters, but it won't slosh around. And it's also a little bit more comfortable if your backpack isn't, you know, full to oh, yeah. the brim. Yeah, as you just do that by unscrewing the like fill port and squishing a little bit. I could also try that. Sounds like you get yeah. water all over the place now. But yours sounds like it'll make you burp if you suck all the air out. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I don't know. So far, so good. Yeah, I, I like yeah. my tip. It sounds interesting. I, I stand by my it. tip. Yeah, I'll do a YouTube video about it. You should. Yeah, but you can also just un- like when it's filled, you unscrew it a little bit and squish it just so the water like almost comes out and then close it again and it'll take. All oh yeah, but see, I get all of the air out. It's yeah, better. your sounds more. Yeah, efficient. no, no sloshing at all. <laughs> yeah, and burping's fun, I guess. So, get into another techie one. Um, I think one thing, if you read Pink by comments, you'll know that all of pink bike readers are the fastest riders in the whole world and are very, very hardcore and could definitely win a world cup. just hands down, they just haven't entered yet. So rampage or probably rampage. Yeah. I mean, they're really, really good riders. And that's one thing why you'll see people every time a review comes up where the reviewer writes something like, you know, I I use this much pressure in these tires. People say, how do you do that? Like, why don't you flat all the time? I need to run double downhill tires with five inserts in them. And I still get flats. So I think it's a myth that's going around that you need super, super burly tires and inserts no matter what. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's a lot terrain dependent and riding style dependent. And it's another one of those things where it's good to assess, like assess your situation. I know like where I live, it's more roots than rocks. And I could get away with maybe a little bit lighter uh, casing tires than I could if I lived somewhere like, say, Arizona. If I was living in Phoenix or Sedona or something, I would probably run, be more likely to run heavier duty tires. You guys experience any of this where people tell you you need like super, super burly tires, but you probably don't? Yeah, I mean, I've never run inserts, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think they're absolutely vital. Um, yeah, I don't have super burly downhill tires and I get along fine. So <laughs> that's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do notice, you know, just like an XO versus an XO plus casing. I have to definitely ride a lot more air in an XO casing than an XO plus casing, or it'll kind of like fold in corners and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't get a ton of flats. I feel like if you were somebody who got a lot of flats, then people would give you this advice. And it could be, a, there could be another issue with your bike, like your rim type or um, your tires are really old. And, you know, maybe the issue isn't that you don't have inserts and DH casing which are going to add a whole lot of weight to your bike. Yeah, that's the thing. I think it's like, it's good. It's another part of like finding balance. Like, and don't get me wrong. I do like downhill tires and I like running double down, super sticky tires for most of the years. Like I'll run a double down in the back and an XO plus in the front and be super happy. But you do see people rocking around on, you know, full downhill tire setups that um, they might not necessarily need based on the trails that they're riding. So they can save a little bit of weight. Like you save a couple pounds of rolling weight. That's a pretty big deal. So it's a lot. Um, yeah. So yeah, just kind of think about your tire setup and make it suited to what you're, you know, what and where you're riding. And yeah, definitely. If you're in a rockier area, you might want, you know, to add a little bit of a higher, harder casing. Yeah. And same like tire pressure, you know, checking your tire pressure, it's going to depend on your, your weight and riding style. Again, you know, I'm a little bit lighter so I can run pretty low tire pressure, like in the low twenties. And sometimes people say, how do you do that? It's like, well, it's because I weigh this much. So if I weighed, you know, 20, 40, 50 pounds more, I'd probably have to run more pressure. So it's uh, yeah, it's a matter of figuring out your setup and not believing everything that you read. Everywhere. Yeah. And also when it comes to tire pressure, I mean, you know, I might have one tire gauge that tells me one number and another tire gauge that tells me another number. So your numbers will be consistent with everything that you're doing, but my numbers can be different to that. So if, you know, I feel comfortable on my tires at 22, um, that might not be what, you know, you're reading on your tire gauge at the same tire pressure. So whatever tire pressure gauge you go with, just use that one and ride whatever 
tire pressure works on that. This can keep on the tire wheel kind of thing. Another myth that goes around that you need super high engagement hubs. Have you ever heard that one, Sarah? Like you need like instant engagement is the best. And that's the way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, yeah. What do you think? I mean, I've ridden a lot of those value bikes and they still work pretty darn good. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the, the biggest fault with them was not, you know, the hubs engagement. So yeah, I think you can definitely have a lot of fun riding with out super high engagement hubs. Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, there's something, there is something novel about having a super fast engaging hub. You notice it for the first little bit of the ride. And then I feel like I forget about it. It's like, oh, it's just another, another hub. So, um, yeah, there's another, it's another thing where there's a balance. Like if you have a really low engagement, super cheap hub, sometimes that can be noticeable. Like you have to pedal a lot before you rotate a fair amount before the hub even starts engaging. But mm -hmm. I'd say a lot of these mid, you know, 10 degrees of engagement or 10 degrees between engagement points is like pretty normal and pretty feels good. Um, so yeah, I don't think just, you don't need to fall into the trap of trying to spend lots of money to get these super fast engaging hubs. And they're starting to say that maybe your suspension works better without the engagement, but there's so much science. And I think we need Dan Roberts to do some graphs and things to <laughs> explain how maybe the, <laughs> the correlation, I know DT Swiss has been doing stuff with, they're kind of saying their 36 uh, tooth ratchet rings are the, the best for all around performance rather than their highest end, like 54 tooth. So yeah, this is kind of getting more nitpicky. I think this might not be a common myth, but it was, <laughs> we had someone yeah. mention this to us, but <laughs> the beginner goes out to buy their first bike. You definitely yeah. need higher engagement, faster engagement yeah. hubs. <laughs> what about, see, does that beginner need carbon wheels? You think everybody needs carbon wheels because they're the best ever? Well, if you're going to ride your inserts and your DH casing with your regular wheels, oh, I don't know where I was going with that. Are they heavier, lighter? They're kind of the same weight now, so there's not really... Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Carbon <laughs> wheels have gotten heavier now yeah. because they try because they're all breaking at first. And so... And then once carbon wheels stop breaking quite as often, they, um, the weights aren't, there's not a massive weight difference, I'd say. Like if you're looking for like an Enduro approved carbon wheel set versus an aluminum one, you'll probably save maybe a hundred grams or something. So mm -hmm. yeah. And a lot of the racers actually use those aluminum, uh, rims in case they, you know, have a, they don't want a catastrophic fail in their race. They want something that they could, you know, potentially hit back together and get to the end of the race. Yeah, I think there's a lot of myths that go around about materials and mountain biking generally, you know, um, titanium probably being like some kind of space age, unbelievably magical material being among them. Um, or, you know, um, carbon always being like um, the stiffest thing ever and, and, you know, aluminium being really pliable and, and um, flexible. Um, yeah, I think there's there's just a lot of... of um, just so stories that goes around about these things. Yeah, exactly. I remember when I was a kid, I had a buddy whose dad was a, he was a welder and he made him a, a titanium hardtail. And I was like, oh, it's going to be so light. You're so lucky. You've got a titanium hardtail. That thing was probably like 40 pounds. <laughs> it was not, <laughs> not light. Like just because it's titanium, it has this kind of like, yeah, like you said, a space age allure, but it's a, it's actually not that light of a material. It's, it's just, um, so yeah, I think that does get tossed around. People think that different materials are going to have special properties but that's not always the case and yeah kind of going back to carbon like i think aluminum rims work super well if you're on a budget or even if you're not on a budget like i think aluminum is, is a great option but to be fair carbon wheels there's a lot out there that have that last a long time you, you don't have to true them as often as you do with an aluminum wheel typically so um yeah don't believe all the hype i would say if there's hype around 
lots of things because it's mountain biking. But uh, yeah, aluminum's great for four rims. And I think if someone was asking me what they should buy for a wheel set, I would definitely steer them towards just a solid three cross J bend aluminum wheel set. And they would hopefully be good for a long time. How about geometry? I feel like the last few years we've seen a lot of geometry trends come and go and things change and what people ex- or you know, the things that people expect a bike to, to do on the trail aren't necessarily accurate. Um, let's see. How about like chain stays, Sarah? Do you have a, any chain stay preference? Like, Short chain stays, long chain stays. Do you care? Do you notice? I it? mean, I'd say on the shorter side. I don't like super long chain stays, but yeah. Have you ridden long chain stay bike? Um, I mean, like that Vitus had really long chain stays from the field trip that we did. Um, mm-hmm. and like even the bike I'm on currently had has shorter chain stays than the one I was on previously, and it's a little bit easier just to like do tight corners and like flip around the back end. I think this was a thing that like there is, yeah, I think chain, short chain stays can help sometimes with cornering, but there used to be the thing, a race towards having the shortest chain stays possible. Right. Yeah. I think I'll yeah. probably put the blame on specialized for that. <laughs> there was a time where they're just like, yeah, I remember they're that. all about short chain stays and now they're coming out, their bikes are much more moderate and even mm-hmm. have some adjustability to, to make them longer. But I think that it's all about balance again here. Mm-hmm. Like I like longer chain stays typically. Um, yeah, I can ride bikes with short chain stays, and they're fun too. But I do think that in recent years we've seen that the idea that short chain stays are the best has kind of gone away. Which I'm glad that that's sort of going away because I think that you can just the speed and the stability you can get with longer chain stays and the better balance is mm-hmm. it's a pretty good thing. Especially yeah. with taller riders, it makes sense if a taller rider has longer chain stays and a shorter rider shorter chain stays. Just I think it works well. So, if you're all out speed, get long chain stays. <laughs> yeah but even if you're going slow it's stability like slow speed stability is there too it doesn't it's just a yeah it's just a different thing i think that i think there's still a fear of really long chain stays but i think that in some places it could work well mm-hmm. maybe not menar long i think you might have gone too fast. <laughs> <laughs> <We'll see. laughs> yeah longer lower slacker so you gotta have longer reach and chain stays says Cass. 2021 yeah <laughs> good point because there's limits yeah we'll have to have it i mean i don't want to get too deep in geometry world but maybe we'll do a geometry podcast one of these days because i there is a, there are limits for sure like i think reach numbers have almost topped out but we'll mm-hmm. see but i guess another thing that the slacker bit though well like you can't climb on a slack bike you heard that before oh yeah definitely maybe i mean i was worried when i first started riding slacker bikes that i wasn't going to be able to make it up tight corners uh-huh. how did it work out well, you know what? It is actually easier to climb on a really steep bike, but you can definitely just kind of go a little bit wider and you can still totally climb on a slack bike. You just get used to it. And I bet after mm-hmm. a few rides, you eventually, that's just, you know what you need to do. And so you don't even think about maybe setting up a little wider, but I find that slack bikes can climb super well, especially if it's like a straight ahead section that's super jumbly. You can kind of just almost sit and spin easier than on a shorter, on a, a steeper bike where it kind of mm-hmm. the front end is so, yeah, yeah, it's I almost think, like longer, like trail bikes actually climb up those like kind of steeper, bumpier things more easily than like a super short travel, really steep bike. Yeah, you have just exactly. more traction climbing as well as descending. Um, but on the really tight corners, like we noticed, even you know a couple degrees on those cross country field test bikes in last year, that mm-hmm. it's actually a lot easier to like wind through really tight corners. But I mean, how often do you? encounter those really tight corners there's a lot of other stuff that come you come across on a climb yeah this is another one that has both but i think that even even for 
like a modern cross country bike, the head angle is way slacker than we would have expected it to be, mm-hmm. you know, a few years ago, really. Yeah. So what used to be considered slack, it's all of a sudden normal. Like earlier, I mentioned that stump jumper, the regular specialized stump jumper, that has a 65 degree head angle, which people used to think that that's just only for, you know, I'm pretty sure the Enduro had a 66 head angle for a long time, but now we're talking about 130 bike. So yeah, I think bikes can still get slacker and it's not something to be afraid of when it comes to climbing. You'll, you'll be able to climb just fine with a, a slack bike. Now we're getting into the, the semi, semi myth busters. Yeah, these are yeah. Some of these myths are just like consider what you're hearing and then pick the right option. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. What else we have? Uh, coil shocks are the best ever. You definitely need a coil shock. <laughs> they look the coolest. That's a, they say so, cool. that counts for a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's like a trophy truck. They have them. So, but they also have air shocks. So yeah, this is another myth that coil shocks do have a place and they can be excellent, but they are not the best thing ever. That can be a pain to set up because you need to get the right spring rate. So that makes them a lot more difficult to achieve the right amount of sag compared to an air shock where you can tune it in one degree increments or sorry, one PSI increments. Um, They're heavier. They do tend to last a long time. It seems like, like you don't have to, there's no little air seals or anything in there to rebuild compared to air shock. But I do think the coil shock uh, hype machine it's got its own, like whoever's doing PR for coil shocks, every once in a while they do a good job. And everyone, <laughs> everyone gets coil shocks and they're like, oh wait, I kind of like my air shock before. Yeah. Well, there's some bikes that just don't work as well with them. You know, they're kind of built around an air shock. And if you put a coil shock on it, it might look sweet, but you know, if it's not as well suited to that bike, it's not going to ride as well. Yeah, exactly. Like I've had, there are some bikes where it's great and yeah, especially in like slipperier terrain, we want the max amount of grip. Um, they're good, but. Yeah, again, I don't think that you, you don't need a coil shock to get the best performance out of your bike, but it can be an option. All right, what else do we have on this list? Okay, <laughs> thanks, Sarah. What's a myth? <laughs> well, you think it's a myth that you need a chamois. <laughs> I Is that how you say it? Chamois? I say chamois. Chamois? Chamois? Is that how you say it in it's French? A chamois? It's it? a chamois? <laughs> chamois? Isn't chamois? that the guy on TV? Shamwow, the guy sells you stuff on like late night infomercial. Oh, I never stay up that late. And you probably thirty ten, I'm asleep. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. The, the chamois myth. I, I mean, some people it's good to have a chamois, but I do think that a lot of specialized riding gear. It's kind of a more of a general thing. The, the, the idea that you need all this special gear to go mountain mm-hmm. biking. It's kind of a myth. Like you need a helmet, and that's pretty much it. Like you can get away with just regular. A t-shirt will be fine if you're not going out for a super long ride. You don't need these like special shorts with special pockets and stretchy things. And basically you just need comfortable outdoor gear and you'll be just fine. And, you know, shoes like skate shoes will work in a pinch, like the stickier shoes work better, but you can, you know, sneakers probably not ideal. <laughs> yeah. I think the whole idea that you need like tons of super expensive clothing to go mountain biking is definitely a myth. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you're buying, buying that $1,200 Canyon stoic, you probably aren't going to be wearing $1,200 worth of apparel. Like you can probably just wear your regular hiking gear that you just happen to have on hand, you know? Yeah, exactly. And even going to like the the thrift stores or your local, like the, you know, if you're in a town that has kind of a good mountain bike scene, if you go to the Goodwill or whatever the, you know, the thrift store, sometimes you'll find used mountain bike apparel that people have just given away or you know, gotten rid of it. And it's super cheap. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, people that are Don't just starting out really not shiny though. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't recommend. If there's one thing you should not buy, don't buy you chamois. I don't know. That would be gross. <laughs> I don't think there's any amount of washing that would make me wear one of those. <laughs> yeah. But I do yeah. think if you're just setting out and, um, 
yeah, that riding is uncomfortable, then that's probably one of the things I would be most likely to recommend is, does your saddle fit? Do you have a comfortable yeah. chamois? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want people out there with saddle sores either. So yeah, if you take all my advice, you might end up like dehydrated with big saddle sores. So maybe take everything I said. And lots I of flat tires. And, and flat tires. Oh man. Never looping your chain. Oh, wow. Well. Dang it. <laughs> no, I am giving good advice, I swear. But overall, yeah, you don't need overpriced mountain bike specific clothing. Some of it is really nice. And if you can afford it, there's some good stuff, but uh, you don't need to go spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars just to enjoy the sport. Same with gloves. Like you don't even need gloves they are nice and especially when it's sweaty out but there's plenty of riders and professional riders that ride without gloves you know they're they're an optional accessory and you can get good ones like 20 bucks you don't have to drop 50 dollars on gloves mm-hmm. oh speaking of crashing because sometimes when i whenever i don't wear gloves i crash so i do wear gloves most of the time because there's definitely a correlation in my brain between <laughs> if i don't wear gloves i crash on my hands like right away so that's why i wear gloves but uh have you ever heard the saying if you're not crashing you're not trying yeah, I, I always got told, like, you learn by crashing. But I guess it's, like, a similar thing, right? Like, the idea that if if you're not, like, pushing yourself beyond your limits, you'll never get better, which, I mean, it's nonsense. The thing that's only ever improved my riding is just riding more. And you don't ride more if you crash a lot. You tend to be laid upon the couch a lot more. So, yeah, I don't agree with this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's probably not a bad idea to learn how to crash. That can be a, a, a useful skill early on, like... The other day, I've got a little brother that he doesn't mountain bike very often, but he does jujitsu. So he came over and he was trying to ride a bike and he like went over the bars and he did the most, like the most perfect barrel roll thing. It was just fine. Like he knows how to crash. Like even though he's beginning a beginner at mountain biking, he's been able to take some ridiculous slams and just get up because he's, he's built like a, a brick shit house, but he can also just like tuck and roll from all the jujitsu training. So <laughs> I think that learning how to tuck and roll is a super useful skill for anybody, um, so when you do crash, hopefully it doesn't hurt as much. But you don't need to crash. We'll still think you that you're trying. Yeah, exactly. You can try hard and not crash. Yeah. And I think it can get you. Yeah. Because yeah, like James said, a lot of people just start out in the sport and they're just crashing all the time because like, I'm going to figure this out, which is good. But you don't have to crash. You can, you know, ease your pace, ease into the things mm-hmm. rather than just going, going crazy. Yeah. On the subject of crashing, um, I think there's maybe a myth that like, um, like you'll be safer on flow trails than tech trails. Um, and maybe, you know, if you're riding for the first time, like, oh, start on a flow trail and, and um, you know, avoid the, tre- the tech ones. But um, the problem with flow trails is you can build up a lot of speed very quickly. And if you do come off, it's, it's likely to hurt quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, you'll run into the obstacles more faster than if you're kind of a nervous rider going down a tech trail. I mean, it goes sometimes both ways. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes on flow trails, you see beginners going over the jumps, but like kind of half hitting them and half casing them and doing really scary things where I feel like it would almost be better if they're on a more techie, slower speed trail because they'd be less likely to do the horrible, like full case of doom where they get like the double bounce. Like they get air, they land in the middle of the tabletop, and then they get that other bounce that just looks like it's going to destroy them. Yeah. So. I did that pre riding for a course, a Canada Cup course or Quebec Cup course runs at Romo. And there was like these four rollers that I didn't know about they were just like kind of over a hill and i like went over one of them straight into the other one on my head and decided not to race uh, the next day <laughs> uh, bummer <laughs> yeah, yeah so. when you get the yeah when you get the, the rhythm off on the road yeah it's no good yeah it's like in supercross we see them they're like good 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 and just like it's really bad <laughs> yeah the the phrase no dig no ride it really bothers me i hate that phrase so much and basically the concept behind it is that you should be building or helping maintain your trails or you shouldn't ride them at all 
And now I need to clarify that I do think that if there's a private zone, as whether it's like a super nice trail style dirt jump spot, um, there the no dig no ride rule totally totally appropriate. Like you don't want somebody coming in, casing your jumps, wrecking them, and then leaving without helping. Like you should help out on those style. But I think for general trails, not everybody needs to be a digger. Like you should donate money to your local trail organization and go out and volunteer when you can. But if you don't have the time, I don't think there needs to be this like shade, this idea of guilt. Like you didn't dig, you can't enjoy this trail. So that's my little pet peeve. I think it's just, you get this like I have massive respect for all the builders out there, but then when they just start trying to close off public things or make it seem like you need to feel guilty for riding, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, you definitely need to contribute somehow to the upkeep of your local trails. You know, like you say, if it's financially great. Um, but yeah, often like if you don't have much experience in trail digging and you can build something the first time, often you can you can make things worse or build something that's kind of dangerous or, or kind of could... Um, could cause like liability issues and things like that um so yeah massive respect for builders and definitely you know contribute somehow to your local trail network for sure um don't worry about riding if you haven't dug something i think Mm -hmm. i think well in some places you can almost harm relationships with local communities if you're building somewhere illegally so it's kind of a fine balance between definitely buy your local membership help out on trail days when you can um but if you're just going out to make yourself a sweet loamer that might actually hurt, uh, you know, bike bikes being allowed on trails in your community more than it helps with the no dig, no ride. Yeah. Or there's the people that think they should dig and then they go dumb down a trail. Like they go out like with a trail here <laughs> where a guy went out and he was cutting all the roots out cause he hated roots. I'm like, no, that's not, like, you know, he's trying to help, I guess in some way, but he was just making it worse. So yeah, not everybody needs to dig. Like, there's talented trail builders. And if you want to get involved, like, that's awesome. And, you know, learn how to dig properly. But I don't think there needs to be shame. Uh, no one should shame someone for not digging in a, in a public spot. Obviously, there's different rules for private and, uh, and other spots. But, yeah, that's one of my little pet peeves. I just don't like that saying for some reason. I, I know it applies. It's more from the BMX world, and it totally works in those sweet jump uh, zones that they have. But, uh, yeah, support your builders, but don't feel guilty for riding your local public trails don't poach trails either, but that's like a whole nother thing. We'll talk about another podcast probably maybe uh, this was suspension. When we kind of talked about suspension earlier, one of the questions that guy was asking how to mm-hmm. know about properly set up suspension. But, um, I've, I've had people come into a shop before that they like, oh, I'm bottom out my suspension once in a while. Like it's not right. Have you guys heard that myth that like, if you bottom out your suspension, that's bad. You need to break it. Things. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's not true. Yeah, you can bottom out your suspension, and yeah. it, most things should be fine if everything's designed properly, which it should be nowadays. It's okay to you know, if you go off a big hit and use all of your travel, that's totally fine. Like you don't want to be using it off every little thing, but you've got a lot of suspension. You might as well use most of it. Sometimes, not all the time, but uh, yeah, I think it's nothing to be afraid of if you bottom out your suspension. You, nothing's going to break. A lot of them have a, a bumper or something in there to allow it to make that last bit of travel smoother, but. Uh, yeah, it's all right to bottom out your suspension. Maybe not every ride, depending on what you're riding, but on bigger hits once in a while, totally fine. You guys have any more myths? I think we're getting close to the end of the list. Yeah. Anything that we've missed or you think people should know is not true? I feel like I got a lot of bad advice when I was a beginner that I took. Like I remember going on a ride. I read in some mountain bike magazine that you should like shift to your almost your hardest gear and then ride the whole ride in that for training. <laughs> 
So I just went to like, <laughs> I was on my like hardtail just going for a long time in my hardest gear. It was so hard. I know that was bad for my knees. Yeah. Sure. Like, yeah, that was like the goal was to not shift out of that gear. And I'd just be like struggling up hills. I don't think that was good advice. Yeah. Yeah. If you have knee problems in the next couple of years, you'll know why. It was that one ride when you were a kid. That was a long time ago. But yeah. I just, I can still remember like reading that be like, here's how you train. Just go into your hardest gear and never leave that gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we could come up with some with bad, bad training advice. Uh, yeah. That could be another one. We'll do another episode of bad training advice myths. Uh, yeah, I think might as well get into some comment gold, I guess. You want to do these ones, James? Sure, yeah. The first one is from Emery Ben. Um, left this on one of those uh, X Games real MTB videos. And they say, um, one thing is apparent, I do not real mountain bike. And if that's what real mountain biking is, then uh, I don't real mountain bike either. So, <laughs> Yeah, me neither. I wish I could real mountain bike, but those are some impressive things. I'm going to practice my backflip off our roofs later today. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then on the uh, Canyon Stoic article, the first uh, review from our new field trip series, JDFF has said, for the price of a new fork, you could get a friend or spouse into riding. And Tanner Valhuli has said, I'll take the new fork. Yeah, I like Tanner. Good job, Tanner. (laughs) <laughs> so. there's nothing wrong with the canyon <laughs> yeah i think we said that it must be really difficult being the product manager on that bike when your entire bike has to cost what a fork did on you know some other product managers bikes i think that brings us to the end of episode 58 so as always thanks for listening let us know if you have any myths or things that we missed in the comments and we'll be back next week <laughs> <laughs>